can't stop the signal of Geek Top 5. Yay! I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we're here to talk to you about the five coolest things that happened over the last couple of weeks in the world of geekdom. The best world. Speaking of best worlds, our number five. I love every opportunity we get to talk about Firefly. We don't get nearly enough. No, and that is a sign that we are not living in the ideal timeline. That something (laughs) has gone wrong somewhere and needs to be fixed. I can't imagine why you'd be listening to this podcast if you don't know Firefly. Ran on Fox in 2002. Great sci-fi sort of western thing. Serenity, the movie, came out in 2005. Tried to revive it, didn't really. The The interesting thing about it is that it was on for, what, like 14 episodes? Of... I think there were 13 episodes total, but not even all of them aired. Right, and uh, then it found this whole new life on DVD. It was one of those shows, like Family Guy. Yeah. Cult hit. Uh, people wandering around in the costumes, wearing the gear, using the slang. It's phenomenal. And, and, it's, and listen... Also, like, aside from the fandom, it actually is a great show for what it is. One of those shows that was just canceled too soon, and nobody knows why. Like, no good reason. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was low ratings, right? I mean, that's that's the death knell to all these things. And yeah, it, it's... after, what, like, six episodes, like, after a show yeah. that nobody had heard of. Hey, like... that that happens. It's a cruel business, and, and it was poorly marketed, and they, they didn't find the audience, and I, I think it was probably one of those things where they kept moving the... the times it aired around yep if it had been on something like the sci-fi channel it probably would have had a better chance at surviving well like like battle stars or stargate right so it's gone and now it's a hit and it's it's become one of those things people talk about like oh fuck those dummies mm-hmm. um turns out well i mean we're not getting any new firefly but they're talking to this who is this guy this is fox's president of entertainment which that, like, that sounds great. <laughs> That's a great title. Yeah. I'd like to be the president of entertainment. Yeah, no, I do that every day. Uh, <laughs> this guy, David Madden, who who basically said, like, actually, yeah, Fox would love to do more Firefly. Now, this uh, guy probably wasn't around when it was canceled or first greenlit. So sure, so let's not blame him. Yeah. Um, and he said that just as a, you know, but the condition, the hardcore conditions, we're only going to do it if Joss Whedon comes back to do it. Now, that sounds great. It sounds great, that right? Like, on the top, it's like, wow, this guy gets it. That's exactly how we feel. Uh, right. But is it great? I mean, for starters, it's been over ten years. It's been over a decade since Serenity, so that's terrifying. But really what it comes down to is, would the show have been the hit it was if it had kept going? If it was... You know, yeah. I, if it was just a regular show. One it's... of one of my, my favorite things, so sometimes, because they aired around the same time, sometimes people ask me in a geeky way, as often happens, yeah. which do you prefer, Battlestar Galactica or Firefly? And my stock answer for a question like that is Firefly. Because Firefly never had an opportunity to, to disappoint me. All it is is potential. It's beautiful. Those those episodes that they are, they aren't flawless, but they are so good. And it just ends on this note where it's like, I just want more. By the time Battlestar ended, there'd been highs, there'd been lows, and I was ready for it to end. I never had that with Firefly. Yeah, it ne- we never got a chance to see what it would grow right. up into. And there's been some exploration of that, uh, mostly in terms of comic books. There oh, have been so many comic books. Yeah, there have been comics that like you know, fill the blanks and all that, but some that take place after Serenity. After major plot points are resolved, after certain characters are no longer around, and they're not great. Um, yeah. They're not awful, but 
and, and again, to be fair, the medium is totally different. It's a whole different thing. I think Whedon himself came out at one point and said he doesn't really see like Firefly's structure working well in a comic format. Yeah. The way he wanted to do it. And he's right. But it sort of casts that thing. It's like, well, do we actually want more Firefly? Or maybe is it best to leave it as it is? And that, I know, that hurts me to say. I can see the look in your face. <laughs> okay, I just I have like two points. One thing before we get to all this is that this answer from the Fox guy absolves him of any sort of responsibility. Now he can just be like, well, it's not us that's stopping you from having more Firefly. Now it's Joss Whedon, which is kind of, it sounds good, but it's kind of a jerk move. Kind of. Because it's like, there. it doesn't say Joss Whedon can come back and we'll give him carte blanche to do whatever he wants. It just says he needs to be the showrunner. So if Joss Whedon then says, I'd love to come back, and then they start negotiating, and it turns out they want things that he doesn't want, and leaves, and now it's Joss's fault that yeah, there's no more Firefly. kind of a setup. Yeah, so it's a bit of a setup. It puts him in a precarious position. He, as far as I can tell, hasn't said one thing or another about this. Uh, publicly anyway, since this came out. The other thing is, there's been some talk about, you know, so much time has passed, it's not even going to be the same show. Like, if you bring those characters back, it's going to be a whole different feeling. Yeah. And note, one of those characters can't come back, because Ron Two? Glass passed away. Well, yes. Right. I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs> but also, because of events in the Well, yeah, and because of events strategy. in the show, some of those characters are gone. Yeah. But, like, even if you wanted to revisit or do flashbacks or fill in holes, like, that actor's not around anymore. Right. In any case, no, there is no news of any of this actually happening. Just an interesting comment by this guy, which is the kind of comment someone, I feel like a studio would make if they were gauging interest. Yeah, that's you true. Know, it's not something you just say offhand when you're the president of entertainment. Yeah. So, maybe depending on how people react, we might see some Firefly action in the near future, in which case we'll be all over that like ants on a french fry. <laughs> we'll let you know. Number four on the list, from sci-fi to fantasy, uh, author Philip Pullman from the His Dark Materials trilogy is writing a new trilogy. Yeah. A companion trilogy, which honestly I kind of like, mm -hmm. as opposed to just a straight sequel. But this sounds really cool. This is... um. So if you don't know his Dark Materials, you've probably at least heard of Northern Lights or The Golden Compass. It's the same book, different titles in different regions. And Golden Compass had a movie. And, well, barely. <laughs> hey, you put Nicole Kidman and uh, uh, Daniel Craig in his Bondian Prime in a movie, that's, that's more than, than a bit of a movie. That's a, that's a pretty solid cast. Okay, you know, it, so it, was, it, was, it had all the necessary ingredients to be a movie. <laughs> put it this way, Golden Compass was supposed to be a trilogy... And this age when everything is a trilogy, and even then they said, okay, you know what, after this one I think we're finished. Right. And because of that we ended up with the Hobbit trilogy. So really this is just a, this is a stacked catastrophe. <laughs> Any case, uh, Golden Compass, Northern Lights, he wrote it, it came out in 95. And then the, the sequels, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass in 97 and 2000. I feel like the closest analog is probably a Harry Potter kind of thing. It's yeah. got fantasy elements to it, but there's also a lot of sci-fi. And then as the books go on, it gets really heavy into philosophy and theology. Yeah, maybe Harry Potter with some Chronicles of Narnia thrown in there. Yeah, there you go. It, um, for a lot of people, it's really up there in those with Harry Potter and Chronicles of Narnia, like those really important works of fiction. But somehow it, it feels like it didn't quite push through that barrier to the triple a put it on everybody's shelf yeah i feel like it loses a lot of people once the it, it, the third book gets into philosophy and theology a bit more it's it gets a bit more 
dark and heavy-handed than... It's very heavy-handed. Yeah. In that case, it's sort of the anti-Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Because uh, basically, like, Philip Pullman has said this himself, that these books are about killing God. <laughs> Which... Some people don't necessarily want their children to read. Yeah, some people take that a little personally. <laughs> For some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it starts with a young, you know, it's a young adult sort of set up with a girl in a magical world who sets off on an adventure and crazy things happen. It's, well, okay, I personally wasn't a big fan of 2 and 3, but I really liked Golden Compass at least. Other people love this thing. Yeah. They have their alephiometers, their golden compasses. <laughs> Very cool prop. It's, it's, it's a good read. This new trilogy is The Book of Dust, which, man, we would have to devote an entire podcast to explaining dust in this universe. Right. But dust is sort of... It has a sciency analog in terms of dark matter, and then a theological analog in that like, the characters in the books think dust represents the original sin, and then a fantasy sort of analog in that dust is sort of this magical presence in this world that links like the kids to their demons. Yeah. Which, in this case, aren't demons demons, but yeah, it gets yeah, really yeah. into the weeds. Yeah. <laughs> But he's going to be writing this as a companion trilogy. It's sort of going to overlap, it sounds like, with what's happened in The Golden Compass. It's One of the books is going to have Lyra, who is the, the essentially the protagonist, like a younger version of her. And then another one of the books is going to have like her when she's much older. Yeah. My understanding is the first one is ten years before the, the original trilogy and the next two are ten years after the original trilogy. Uh, the first book is coming out in October. I remember hearing about this book ages ago or this series and it was originally conceived as as a single volume and just sort of a series of short stories and and uh, explanations of how the universe works and obviously in a George R R Martin-esque way it <laughs> expanded beyond one volume. Well, I mean, let's be fair, that's not just George R R Martin. Sure, it's sure. fantasy paperbacks in right. general. The Wheel of Time anybody? <laughs> right. Ugh. In any case, um so these are coming out October. It um it's well, just the first one's coming The first out one, October. right? You're going to be hearing about it, I mean, because as we discussed, it has sort of a controversial background. This is sort of the same way Harry Potter is controversial in some places. Usually, you know, the American Deep South. Yeah. You have people who want to ban it because it's teaching witchcraft to children. It's, uh, I, I don't know. It's like, I, you know, we're, we're Canadian. We always yeah. want to see both sides of an argument. Sure. There's no side to the Harry Potter argument. Right. Yeah, there's, there's no corruption of children happening there. In this case... The books are very strongly arguing for an atheistic universe. They're very much saying that, like, religion and organized faith and all this stuff is wrong and bad and hurting people, and the solution to that problem is to turn away from it all. Now, just to be clear here, I don't think either of us are advocating a ban on this book or a ban on any book. Oh, no. I I would put a pretty hard foot down and say you should not ban any book. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that would be the start and end of that argument. You're going to hear about this controversy, however. I mean, because, if nothing else, because that's how you get you know, click views these days. You have to have a dramatic headline to get people to read it. So the media will cover this and put it out there that, you know, oh, horrible fantasy, theistic, you're going to hear about it. Right. What our position on this is, is look past the controversy and read these books. Because yeah. you know what? There are, a lot of, like, there are a lot of fun and they're very compelling. And don't get... You know, something I have a problem with sometimes is I get uh, I get roped in with the young adult tag on, on a book where if I see that, I'm usually like, nah, it's not for me then. Right. But in this case, it's, it's going to be in the young adult section, but it's not really strictly a kid's book. Yeah, like it, it's almost like it disguises, the, the Golden Compass almost disguises itself as a kid book. It's an adventure. Mm-hmm. 
by the time you get to the end of the third one, and there's entire chapters of characters just sitting talking philosophy, it reads like a Dune novel. <laughs> you know, there's some serious ideas being passed back and forth and not a lot of action. But they're pretty good. If you haven't read the original trilogy, you should check it out. And when there's new stuff come out, it's always exciting to have more. Yeah. More data from a good author. More information. You know, people who love this trilogy are reacting to this the same way that people are reacting to J.K. Rowling like releasing her new Harry Potter stuff, the American stuff. I feel it's like, very exciting. Yes, I feel like some of the Harry Potter stuff has led to some trepidation amongst those fans and some controversy. Yeah. See, it all lines up. Yeah, parallels. <laughs> it's like poetry; it rhymes. <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> <laughs> Number three on the list. Um, holy jeez. So the NBA is going to start an esports league. What? More, this couldn't possibly be more different from our last uh, news item that it, if we had tried. But yeah, the NBA is getting into digital gaming. Esports is a weird term. Even to geeks, esports is a weird term because very traditionally, electronic gaming and sports have been sort of oil and water. Yeah. It's like you have the jocks and you have the nerds, and you have an abyss of misunderstanding between the two. And centuries of blood and violence and warfare and mutual loathing. And this feels like the jocks have realized that the nerds can make money and are now like, well, hey, come on, join the party. Well, that's exactly what it is. And that's sort of what's happened with esports. Esports especially denotes a very recent development in organized gaming that is kind of difficult to wrap your head around. Like, there have always been video game tournaments, like, as early as the 70s. Like, in the 80s, people were doing it on Atari. There was a Space Invaders contest. Right. Thousands of people. Like, like I think literally, like, 10,000 people was the, the, the docket. So people have always played video games. There were television game shows when we were growing up where people would, like, race through Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. And yeah. whoever got... Video and Arcade Top 10. Right. There. Oh, no. that was bothering me all day. I couldn't remember the title. <laughs> but then... Things started to blow up as more and more people started playing... Well, to your point, as more and more people started to play video games, and more and more people who play video games grew up and got jobs and could afford more expensive video games. It started with fighting games and shooters. So games like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. Very easy to pit two people against and, you know, test your skills against each other. Shooting games, you know, your your Halos, your, you know, with the guns at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. Very easy. Like, okay. Counter-Strike. Yeah, Counter-Strike is probably the big example of this one. Eventually, it blew up in South Korea. Um, it has to do with the, like, the culture there and like, the culture of PC cafes. Mm-hmm. So, you've heard of these gaming cafes, internet cafes. I guess they're here. Like, there, there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, StarCraft is a great example. The, the Warcraft games, the StarCraft games, are real-time strategy games. Where you're, right. you're micromanaging so many different elements that it really can be a competition. So they started televising it. Yeah, this and is where then, it loses me a bit. And then they, and then they have people. Oh, so you have the commentators. Oh, as you can see, he's upgrading his Terran Marines machine gun. That's a really interesting choice for this early in the game because it's going to cost him some resources, but it's going to give him this advantage, and right. maybe that means he's going to be going. Like there are elements to it, but then people got really in to those like those strategies and how like, the best ways to play the game. And before long, they were having it in like stadiums. With audience members and these professional gamers, like, start, suddenly they have sponsors, and they're wearing yeah. coats with the sponsors' names on them, and they're getting salary, and they're getting pay. And even then, even then, it was kind of like, well, that's South Korea. <laughs> then it came to the West, and people don't want to watch people play video games. 
Because that's I, not cool. I no. mean, like, I, oh, yes, of course, I do. I'm a dork. I am a dork, too. No interest. Yeah. And I've tried. So they started marketing it as eSports. And they started turning these people into athletes. Right. It's like, you know, the, this guy is the best Dota Defense of the Ancients player. Like, he, he, you know, he, he knows exactly what to do at the right moment. He makes the right decisions with the right characters. Like, he's practiced all his life for this. And, and they start, you, know, you build him up the way you'd build up, like, a wrestler or something. Yeah, it's like UFC fighting, except... It, UFC is a great example. But just instead of, you know, punching each other to death, they're clicking each other's characters to death. Put it this way. You want to know if esports are legitimate? Well, the prizes are up to $10 million for a team. There is game fixing. There's performance enhancing drugs. There's all like you what know, is it the code red Mountain Dew? Is that the performance enhancing drug? Uh, you joke, but no. There are people. There are professional gamers who are overdosing on Ritalin to help them concentrate. You know, on Adderall. Yeah, like it's, not good. So you have people abusing drugs and trying to cheat the system and organize crime revolving around StarCraft matches. That's about as legit as it gets. Yeah. Now the National Basketball Association, the people who run basketball, are opening an esports league. Yeah, my understanding is that there were uh, some of the individual teams were getting involved with esports, and now the league as a whole is making. I mean, it's, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's yeah. too much. Their, it's too much. Their pitch is that each of these teams, real NBA teams, are going to have like an E-team... Analog or yeah, whatever. Yeah, equivalent. It's like they're going to have minor league teams and, and uh, uh, teams that they're connected to in the real basketball universe... And just as legitimately, they're going to have an eSport version. Yeah. So the Lakers and the Knicks are going to play a basketball game, and then the Lakers E-team and the Knicks E-teams are going to play each other in NBA 2K on PlayStation 4. Right. And the winner's going to move on and go advance through the tournament and eventually win a trophy and prize money. And even going beyond that, there's talk of eventually having drafts and people signing players and, and minor leagues that'll filter into these big leagues. So, like, if some guy sprains a thumb and they need to call up a replacement gamer, they've got people in the minors ready yeah. to spring back. I'm, I'm picturing scouts going to these internet cafes and hanging out at college campuses. I mean... It looks like you got what it takes, kid. It just seems so crazy to me. And I, I'm sure I'm going to be proven wrong. I'm sure it's going to be a huge business in, in five years. But right now, it just feels like, like I can't stop myself from rolling my eyes. But the thing is, it's already a huge business. Right. These, these $10 million prizes aren't coming from nowhere. Like, the companies aren't giving it away out of their pocket. It's coming from, like, Mountain Dew, who's sponsoring this tournament. Yeah. And, and but, people it, paying however much to enter the tournament. Yeah, you know, it's like... and then and then streaming it and watching the ads. So it streams, like, the way you'd all get together to watch the Super Bowl, these people are getting together to watch the International. It mm -hmm. gets a huge, it gets millions of viewers every year. It, it, this is a Dota 2 tournament. It is a big business. There's a ton of money in it, and they found a way to exploit it. And to do that, they had to make it mainstream. So now there are these people who used to beat me up in school for playing video games... <laughs> who are totally jazzed about the news about the latest player signed to the United States League of Legends team. Right. It is, we are living in the future. The world is topsy-turvy. It's wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two on the list is that that happened fast. We were just talking about Batman. Uh, 
<laughs> it's not necessarily 100% confirmed, but there is a very strong, potent rumor out there that Matt Reeves is going to be the new director of The Batman, the Ben Affleck uh, Batman movie where he recently vacated the director's yeah, chair. It's a um, short summary in case you didn't hear the previous episode. Affleck was going to direct and star and act and produce. And write. And write. It's, this was his movie. And then he decided, you know what, maybe I don't want to direct this movie. Apparently, just because he wants to free himself up to act better, and certainly not because he has no faith <laughs> in the movie based on DC's track record. Um, but it seems like they've filled it in with Matt Reeves. We don't know if it's confirmed, but they're talking to him, and it sounds like he's interested. And It sounds like one of those rumors where, of course, it's confirmed, or they just haven't signed on the dotted line yet. Yeah. He's, they're probably just working out the, the details, like how many movies he signed up for and how much creative control he's going to have. He's, uh, he's an interesting guy. He comes from the, the J.J. stable of uh, Bad Robot, the J.J. Abrams group of creative types who have uh, sprung from his loins, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> sprung from the loins of his mind. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so he's, he's got a pretty cool track record. He did uh, the Cloverfield, that sort of surprise monster movie with, that was all... All shaky cam, yeah, all shaky first cam. person. Yeah. yeah, fun movie. Yeah, uh, he did uh, uh, an American remake of Let the Right One In, a creepy, uh, I believe Swedish vampire. It was movie. Swedish? Yeah, I think it was Let Me In. Was the, Amer- the Americanized version? Yeah, and it was it was good. I mean, it's hard to match the atmosphere of the original, but they did a, an admirable job. Mm-hmm. And I know he's in the ape business. He, yeah, see, this is where I was, you were dancing uh, around this. Uh, we all know you love talking apes. Love talking apes. And this guy directs talking apes. This man is the source <laughs> of your talking ape fix. At the moment, yeah. I mean, he did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which is up there, I think, with the original Charlton Heston Planet of the Apes as far as quality of... Of apeness? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ape movie. I saw online... It's not monkey business. <laughs> uh, I saw online that someone... Call it the the dark night of Planet of the Apes movies. Oh, come on! Uh, hey, hey, I'm on board. It's got Gary Oldman, and uh, it's got it's, it's got some real gravitas to it. It was a good movie. All right. And okay. now the, the sequel is coming out, War for the Planet of the Apes, and it's uh, also directed by Mr. Matt Reeves. And, I mean, that trailer looks pretty spectacular to me. So he's coming from an interesting resume. I also noticed that he was doing some TV stuff with J.J. Abrams. He did Felicity. Right. Uh, which is weird how often we talk about that show on this podcast, but <laughs> so it sounds like an interesting choice. He's done a little he's done a little bit of horror, he's done a little bit of drama, it's a little bit of fun. Transitioning from that into a comic book movie, it seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Really? I mean He's got all sorts of, of CG cred with the, the ape stuff. He he you know, he can handle himself, I think. But Batman never like doesn't seem like a like it shouldn't to me seem like a CG extraordinary like Batman isn't about him punching his way through buildings and blowing things up. Apparently that's what Superman is about now. <laughs> Thanks, DC. I totally agree with you, but I mean if that's what they're going for, they might as well get the king of the CG movies right now. I guess. You want to make a turd and you go to get like, the chief turd polisher. I don't know that that's... Wow. I, don't... I don't know how I feel about that sentence. Well, listen, I mean, you're right. That's un... that's unnecessarily harsh. The man has done some good work. Yes. But I don't want my Batman movie to be about monsters and, you know, and, and just fights and just... <laughs> Like, I'm thinking, okay, so this Cloverfield was so blowing up a city and, and being scared, and then Let Me In was about vampires and tearing people apart, but, and Apes is about, like, what, machine guns and a parable for racism? No. 
It's... Uh, oh, I can't even talk to you anymore. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate, because this is an audio format. <laughs> so I would encourage First you... First of all, uh, Let Me In is is not a typical vampire No, movie. it's not. You're right. I'm doing it a disservice. Yes. But in terms of what from that can be adapted to Batman... Uh, darkness, people dwelling in the fringes of society, uh, uh, bullies getting their comeuppance. So you get all that from, from yeah, Let Me In. Okay. Uh, Planet of the Apes, the, the dawn and, and uh, the war is all about, you know, conflict and misunderstandings between two groups of people and and just like Batman and Joker. I, I feel like you're saying what, exactly what I'm saying, but the way you're saying it is very positive. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And that, that what, what you should have been doing in the first place. It's... <laughs> Hey, you're always the optimist, I'm always the pessimist. <laughs> hopefully this will end up somewhere in the middle. Oh, actually, ho- no, hopefully, no, hopefully, hopefully I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I just... Uh, look, I, I, I'm very worried about any uh, any DC movie these days, but I do have a lot of respect for Matt Reeves, and I'm, I'm hopeful that he can do what the studio wants him to do while also maintaining his integrity, and, and somehow they'll fuse together and make a better movie than David Ayer was able to with Suicide Squad. Yeah, that sums it up pretty nicely, yeah. actually. You never know. As long as DC keeps making movies, one of those movies might be the first good DC movie. <laughs> Yikes. So we'll have to see. Breaking in for an addendum to this, uh, it turns out that after this episode was recorded, but before I finished editing it, a Hollywood reporter has reported that Matt Reeves has actually dropped out of talks for the director's role. Uh, they mentioned that they're gonna things might work out again after their heads have cooled, which sounds like it might just be a contract dispute. Somebody's unhappy about creative control or unhappy about compensation. But for the time being, he's actually out of the running. So obviously we're a little disappointed, uh, but we'll see what happens. In the meantime, we'll hit cut right back to your regularly scheduled Geek Top 5. Number one, as always, when we're bad-mouthing DC... We have to good mouth Marvel. Is that a word? Good, good mouth? mouth? I no, can't. There's, there's nothing good about that. <laughs> the last couple of weeks, we saw the start of the television show Legion. Yeah. Which a very cool concept. Not exactly tied into the X-Men universe, at it's... least in TV form. I was hoping you could clear some of that up for me. Well, I, I've seen the first two episodes, and so far, any tie to the X-Men verse is uh, pretty much a question mark. The only real thing is that he's called a mutant and and there's an acknowledgement that mutants exist in this world which the way licensing goes that's actually a big step yeah so for those of you not in the know legion is a mutant is a character from the x-men franchise uh, originally showed up in 1985 hey he's our age yeah that's cool he this is professor xavier's son yeah sort Uh, of a, a son he wasn't aware of yeah surprise son yeah so, like all good X-Men characters, he's got a power, but it has a curse. My my understanding in the, the original incarnation is he had a whole bunch of powers, but he also had multiple personalities, and so each personality... Yeah, that's the gimmick. Yeah. Whichever personality is in control at the moment comes with its own power. Yeah. And then over the years, there have been explanations for that, or he's absorbed people's minds and powers, and then there are other explanations where they're just part of... Uh, him, sometimes he's able to, you know, combine it all and be one single personality and identity and have access to all the powers. Sometimes he dies, sometimes he comes back. He's he's a very complex character in the comics. Mm-hmm. Some people really latch onto him, some writers really latch onto him because uh, it's a fun way to explore sort of mental health issues. The show 
Ah, I don't even know where to go with it here. It, it's, it doesn't feel, so far anyway, that they've really tapped into a lot of the stuff from the comics other than the mental health issues. And even then, just sort of vaguely. Like, he starts off in a mental hospital, but you don't really know what his issues are other than the fact that he has powers, but then he's convinced that they're part of his delusion. And and already that sounds pretty interesting to me. Yeah. Like, it's you know, is he really doing any of this? And uh, like, if, and from what I understand, like, He's always been, even in the comics, sort of an unreliable source for information. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know what's real and what's not. He doesn't really understand what's happening. Right? Yeah. So that, that, that is what adds sort of a, I, I don't want to say fight club element to the character, but the... If anything, I'd go more extreme than that because you can't trust anything. I, as far as I'm concerned, you can't trust anything that's happening in that show. I mean, they, they demonstrate that pretty clearly. At one point, he's being interrogated... And he gets upset because he remembers he when he left the mental hospital, he saw the guy interrogating him get out of a car. And then ten minutes later in the episode, he remembers that moment again and sees someone else getting out of the car and oh, realizes cool. it wasn't that person. So you can't trust anything that's happening. That's and there's cool. even a part where there's maybe someone infiltrating his memories. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that sounds pretty cool. It um, So the show... Like all Marvel properties, so far is doing great. It's a hit, and it's gotten all this critical acclaim and praise, and everybody loves it. It's a really interesting, really compelling show, and it's doing something different mm -hmm. with superheroes, which it is like Marvel's stock and trade of now, doing something different with that formula. Right, and you keep saying it's Marvel's, and, and Marvel is attached and involved, but this is an X-Men character. So it's part of the Fox realm. It's it's the mutants. It's tied into those things. Ah, interesting point. Yeah. So Marvel's involved, but it's not the same way as they would be on, say, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Daredevil or Luke Cage. It's, this is, like, they have to put names on it, but I don't think, you know, Jeff Loeb runs the Marvel TV stuff. I don't know how much involvement he has in running the show. His name's in the credits, but I think that might be just like a rubber stamping of his name on there because it's Fox. They can do what they want. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with this going forward. I think one of the smartest things they did was they put it in the hands of a guy who's got this very uh, critically acclaimed show called Fargo, based on the movie. Yeah. And every season it's a little different. Every season it's a new storyline. And it's it's supposed to be fantastic. He's running this show, and so far it's very intriguing, very compelling, and absolutely gorgeous to look at. Now, before we wrap up here, there, there's one thing I wanted to, to say about this, like a theory I have. Uh, right. There's this yellow-eyed demon character who keeps popping up, and he's he's really weird looking, and you only see him in flashes, and he's it's it's very disturbing. And I haven't really read about what's happening on the show too much. I just want to kind of enjoy it uh, on its own merits for now anyway. But I'm convinced that that's the Shadow King, who is... Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. He's an important uh, psychic villain who who's always fighting with uh, Professor Xavier, but also has ties to, to the Legion character. Yeah, he took over Legion's, like, body at one point. Or right. Something in the, yeah, okay. So that's cool. Yeah, and that would be another nice little nod and tie to the comic books, which so far have been few and far between. Like they haven't even addressed the fact that Professor Xavier is is his father on the show yet. So Legion sounds rad. You should go watch it. Where is it? Where where can people go to watch it? Uh, it's it? on FX in the states. I, I'm pretty sure it's on City TV in uh, in Canada, our home and native land. Right, and it'll be streaming before long. I'm yeah. sure that's the way TV is going these days. <laughs> yes. 
In any case, that's Geek Top 5. That's the news for this week. We'll be right back with our special guest segment, so please stay tuned. All right, we're back with another Geek Top 5 top five list. Uh, we are joined once again by our stalwart colleague, Dave Clark. Howdy. And stalwart is underselling it, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I think. And this week, we have a list of the top five Klingons. Klingons. <sighs> Killed my son. <laughs> Don't trust him. You can't trust Klingons, and I never will. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's do a brief explanation for our, our non-Trekkie uh, listeners. You have what? non-Trekkie listeners? I can't imagine. I can't. I, there's at fathom. least one. Okay. All right. So what is a Klingon? You know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Klingons, they're the warrior race from Star Trek. Originally they were bad guys, and then they became just like drinking buddies. Um, they have crazy swords and great hair. And great foreheads. Great foreheads. Yeah. Most of the time. And More espe- like five or six heads. And especially around like the end of Next Generation and through DS9, those characters just became phenomenal. But five of them more than any others. Five of them more than any others. Number five from... Star uh, Trek uh, Six: The Undiscovered Country. Thank you. Chang! General Chang. Played by the inimitable Canadian, I believe, right? Mr. Cl- Christopher Plummer. Yes. Yeah, oddly Captain enough, Captain Von Trapp, he's himself. Indeed, yes. Oddly enough, not a lot of Klingon makeup on him. Um, which is that was like part of the deal for him. <laughs> yeah. No wig, no hair. He's bald. He's got the forehead going vaguely. Yeah, like, there are other Klingons in this movie with like big ridged foreheads. Yeah. he's just got like all. He's like he's, it's like it's a tattoo. Yeah, it's like, like a hickey. It, it looks a lot like Buana Taurus or. Um, Worf's wife. K- Kaler. Kaler's yeah. uh, Gen- half Klingon. Love. So, General Chang. Um, General Chang is basically Super Khan. Okay. Right? They made the Wrath of Khan, and they made this really bombastic Shakespearean villain. And then for Star Trek VI, they needed another bad guy. Mm-hmm. They said, okay, we're going to make him a Klingon, and we're just going to take Khan, and we're going to distill him. And Klingon to his him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now he just, like, he loves war. War is great, it's glorious, and he also loves Shakespeare because that makes a good villain yeah, in classic seems, Star Trek, I that guess. That seems to be a, a trend with Nicholas Meyer, who's the director of that, and Star Trek Two. Khan and Chang both quote pretty liberally from Shakespeare. Yes. Chang actually mentions that you haven't read Shakespeare unless you've read it in the original Klingon. And what does that mean? <laughs> That's the eternal question. Yeah. What it? that means is that the Klingons were playing the role of the Russians for a while in the metaphor of the Cold War. Yes. And that there was a constant game of one-upmanship between the United States and the Russians, or in this case, between the Federation and the Klingons. So having the Klingons take credit for what is widely considered to be an accomplishment, you know, the, the Federation of ours, it's like, whoa, those Klingons. <laughs> it's meant to irritate. The, the Federation crew members. We can't prove that Shakespeare wasn't a Klingon. That's true. Um, you can't prove a negative, so it's technically true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, General Chang is, I think, on this list because he loves his job. Yeah, he's huge. He's larger than life. He's so... He's, as soon as, as, soon as uh, Chancellor Gorkin is assassinated, he is in it to win it. Yeah. Yeah, he is, uh, he takes as few prisoners as possible, 
even though he has to take two prisoners, <laughs> as it were. But you know, it, it's 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 everything is a grand performance. Yeah, and the, in the final battle, like he's spinning around in the captain's chair. Yeah, like, right. like, like literally, like a kid just <laughs> spinning in circles, cry havoc. Like he's having yeah. the best time doing what he does, which is killing people. Yes, now, or trying to. By far, of the first six original series movies, this is a Klingon movie. Like General yes. Chang is great, and he's the best of them. But uh, Chancellor Gorkon, played by the incredible David Warner, yeah. also is great. And then we also have uh, Worf's. Uh, grandfather played by Michael Dorn. Played yeah. by Michael Dorn. <laughs> yeah. Just because yeah. Klingon, why not? Yeah, Judge Advocate or Advocate Worf. Yeah, yeah. Counselor Worf. His name is Worf. Yeah, yeah. So it's I, very confusing if you <laughs> don't know what you're and watching. That film, but we digress. No, Chang is like it's almost bizarre because we don't see any other like the Klingons at this point have all been really angry. Essentially, yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong, they continue to be angry. But they're sort of brutish and sort of thuggish. He really does bring the the joy, the uh, joie de vivre of, the, of battle, the way the Klingons enjoy war and enjoy contests. He he really does sort of epitomize that more it, it, for the first time. Absolutely. In in some ways, he's he's kind of a throwback to the original series uh, Klingons, who were a bit less war and, and barbarian ask and a bit more conniving and sneaky and and that's what Chang is ultimately, right? Like he's Ultimately, but like from the very first moment he appears on the transporter pad, we know all he wants to do is fight Kirk. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's in his posture. It's it's in the performance. That, that yeah. performance is great. And he's in the in the um in the trial scene, he, he he's he's asked a question. He's performing the cross examination and he asks the question of I think of a McCoy, and he's like, don't wait for the translation, answer it now, and he's just on him, and on him, and on him, and that battle, too, the verbal battle, he is in, in, enjoying it, and relishing in, in the contest. Right. Yeah, so for a race of warriors, and, you know, knife people, essentially, <laughs> he is the equivalent of, like, the class act. Yeah. Alright, number four on our list, uh, catching up to modern times now. Lursa and Bator, the Duran sisters. <laughs> 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, man. When they first well, appeared. Okay, so they're 89 <laughs> to uh, Generations. I'm, yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm referring to the chronology of like, in canon oh, of Star Trek. Excuse me. <laughs> and even then, I don't think we're modern yet. We're, yeah. we're closer than Chang. Sure. Okay. Lursa but, and Bator. Of the house Duras. Duras. <laughs> They were like the first real Klingon women that that have a prominent role, right? That, yeah, I that, think there's, there's there's like one classic Kirk episode, that yeah. and then in the the, the Gorkin's daughter. Oh, course. as at Boer, right? Yeah, yeah but she's oh, not yeah, a, yeah. she's not a villain per se. No, but we're talking about fem- just females it's with voices true. and yeah, and that's fair. Characterizations. Yeah. Okay. Well, so anyway, there, there's the Duras sisters. What's the background on them, Jess? Yeah. So the House of Duras is a powerful Klingon house. So the Klingon houses are what you get out, like the Game of Thrones houses, right. yeah. like extended family power structures. I'm sure, he didn't take um, any influence. There. Yeah, there's no <laughs> kidding. Um, the House of Duras, though, we know they're like the sneaky, conniving ones. Yeah. Like in, in a culture that so revolves around honor 
and being you know, forthrightness. Like the reason they're so powerful is because they're sneaky and mean and liars. So they're the bad guys. They've been playing the game for a long time. Yeah, and they're very close to like when, we, when Lursa and Bator we first meet them. The House of Duras, like Duras himself, is still around, and he's going for like he's going to be the Chancellor. He's going to be the King of the Klingons. Lursa and Bator, though, we find out quickly, are kind of the power behind the throne, in a way. Mm. They're sly, seductive, sneaky, backstabbing, murdering little... <laughs> ret- <laughs> censored. <laughs> expletive deleted. Wait, so- and, and so, because they embody everything that's sort of wrong, like that shouldn't be Klingons, they're paired up directly against Worf who we see is like he's our example of what everything a Klingon should be. Like his whole character is that he's trying super hard to be, to be honorable. A, yeah, to be a upright. perfect Klingon. The same way Spock is trying super hard to be a, like as Vulcan as possible. Yes. Now uh, they they do have uh they, they they are loom large over Star Trek the Next Generation and they do have a couple of appearances but really they're not in that many episodes like if I I had been asked I would have guessed you know 10 maybe but it looks like from my notes here they were in a two-parter, and then another episode, and then Deep Space Nine episode, and then Star Trek Generations. True. The Klingon episodes in Next Gen do tend to be very self-contained. Yeah. Um, but they're also some of the best episodes, consistently. Yeah. You know, like, the two-parter you're talking about is Redemption. Yeah. Is like is, It's a story of Worf coming back to his people and the Klingon Civil War, mm-hmm. where they have a huge role. But that is a defining moment for that show. Yeah, and that's that's redemption. The first redemption ends where Worf leaves the Enterprise, right? And we see him in full Klingon battle gear, right? And you think, well, I guess he won't be on the show anymore. <laughs> and of course, he is. But no, that's and that's Lursa and Bator. It turns out their thing is they're going to take over the Klingon Empire with the help of the Romulans, and that's that's the reveal of Sela. Yeah, who yeah. shows? And of course, to the R's daughter. Yeah, all from an so alternate timeline. Yeah, we don't have to get yeah. into it. That's its own list. <laughs> Um, but it's, and that's the whole Machiavellian power play. Of course, the Romulans plan to use them to sort of like puppet rule the Empire. And... I think it would work out well if the, the Romulans were puppet ruling the Empire. The, um, <laughs> the thing about Lurs and Bator, for me, that's, if you say that in the wrong crowd, you're going to get your throat slit for a comment like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't slit your throat. They'd stab you in the heart. <laughs> and eat it. Yes, and eat it in front of you and enjoy every moment. The the thing that I really enjoy about it, uh, Larson Bator is that they're so in. They've already got all the pieces in place and just it's one little thing right at the end that, that makes it come apart. But they, they have been working hard at getting it all lined up. There, another interesting thing about them is if you think about it, there aren't that many recurring villains in Star Trek. They're recurring villain species, but as far as individuals go, until Deep Space Nine, the the recurring villains are few and far between. It's well, basically Q. The, yeah. And Tom Locke and... He, uh, he, I don't know, I would barely count him. him recurring. But he, he does. He does, comes mm-hmm. back. But Lursa and Bator are, like, are constantly on the verge of accomplishing something. Remember, yeah. they're yeah. the ones who end up blowing up the Enterprise-D. Yeah, like, they do accomplish something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they die in the process, but uh, yeah. I mean, and, and as we've discussed, blowing up the Enterprise D really endears them to me. But <laughs> <laughs> disgusting. We don't have to get back on that. <laughs> but they and, and they're just so obviously manipulative in such. I mean, it wasn't around back then to make the comparison, but in such a Cersei Lannister kind of way. Did we say who played them? Oh, who played them? It, Barbara March and Gwyneth Walsh. Right. 
Okay. Who did just did such a fantastic job at just this poisonous, slimy duo. They're, it's yeah, and it's it's, it's and it's weirder how they like they really are like you know they're, yes, they're two separate people, but I don't think we ever see them apart. They're constantly a duo. Yeah. And and just and and you know, Lursa's a little bit more of the. She seems like she's a little bit more in charge, whereas Bator is a little wilder. Yeah. But they're constantly supplementing each other. Yeah. They have this really weird dynamic to them. And they, there's something about playing a Klingon, and it's something that I think will we'll come up on later in the list as well. But something about the makeup and the teeth. I the think te- it's the teeth. It, it lets actors <laughs> dig in. Dig in. And, yeah. And chew the scenery, and it, it lets them let loose in a way that other parts might not you know it, it would have to be a voice acting part otherwise but they're so disguised in this they they can just let loose it's it's awesome I think that to has watch. a lot to do with star trek and the fact that you get to wear makeup yeah and like but but the point is yes you're right the teeth the makeup they just make the character larger and the and broader uh, Roddenberry had a rule that he always wanted to be able to see the mouth move and the eyes move when they did right. the makeups I mean, it's very easy to do more Gorns, right? Um, but <laughs> you leave the wanted, Gorns out of this. He wants to see. He wanted the the humanity to come through the to come through and the acting to come through as much as possible. Anyway, so let's let's move on to number three mm. on the list, and this one is a, a controversial choice. I think yes. we were surprised when this ended up on the list. Yeah, but, but it, we the more we talked about it, the more it needed to be there. It's Alexander Roshenko. played by a bevy of actors: <laughs> <laughs> little um, Alexander, medium Alexander, and old Alexander. Yeah, because we see him over so much of his life. Yeah, um, this is Worf's quarter human son. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Who. Is everything Worf isn't at the start? Like he's a little boy raised by humans, mm-hmm. and he's exactly like a human little boy, but with the Klingon makeup. And I got to admit, on Next Gen, he wasn't my favorite character because of that. I found well, he's a plot point on Next Gen. He's not a character. That's true. That's you fair. Know? He... Until until till, uh, season seven, and and we'll talk about that. But like, for example, when Worf breaks his back, it's he's the MacGuffin. He Worf wants him. He wants Riker to come help him kill himself, but then Riker tells him to get his son to do it. And but that—that's you know—that's one of those episodes. that's like this is like you're actually trying to deal with some real issues, and I'm not sure that you picked the right side. Interesting. When you when you watch in retrospect and what we know about mental illness and and things like that, like it's I'm, watch it again. I don't know if you're again. there in your rewatch, but it's like. That's a hard episode to watch. It also gets undercut somewhat by the fact that they live in the future and then... And they replace the spine. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's never mentioned again. Yeah, Yeah, it's fine. He's good. Yeah. But, but, you know... Yeah, the the point of Alexander to be there is just to be, like, a a turning point for Worf. Yeah, And even in some of the episodes where they do focus on Kid Alexander, like where he's hanging out with Loxana Troy... Yeah. He's really just there as a foil. He's just, Mm -hmm. he's... Like, if it was comedy, he'd be the straight man. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's not interesting for that character, except for the fact that it establishes where that character, where Alexander's coming from. Yeah, he also brings out a lot of interesting stuff in Worf. We we sort of talked about how Worf is separated from from the Klingons at an early age, and so he his reaction to that is to become as Klingon as possible. He yeah. has to be the most Klingon. He does everything he reads. He does all of the rituals. He yeah. does the things that, that Klingons don't do anymore. Yeah, a lot of Klingons look at him and are like, what's up with this guy? The stick is up his butt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, so Alexander being super human, even though he's his son and he looks 
Klingon is is uh, something that is a point of embarrassment for him a lot of the time, and mm-hmm. it's interesting. But as the series goes on, he becomes a, more of a, a prominent character, like in that season seven episode. And it's yeah, a, the, so chronologically, does that happen before we see him on DS Nine? I guess it would. Yeah. yeah. So that's the next thing to go into. Right. Is that um, that's the episode Firstborn, where season this, seven of TNG. Yeah. Um, a current. It sends supposedly the 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 story goes that Kern sends Kern uh, is Worf's brother, yeah, rarely so, seen brother, <laughs> for the non-trekker yes. singular of your audience. <laughs> uh, sends uh, another Klingon from the house to go Mtech. Was uh, I think that was Chemtech. Anyway, Chem- so Chemtech yeah, this Klingon arrives. shows up and says, "Kern sent me to make your little make a man out of your little boy." Yeah. Because Alexander's been so human, now he's got to learn how to be a warrior. Yeah, and he wants him to... He's coming up on... There's a certain rite that he's coming up on the Age of Ascension. Yeah, it's like the Klingon Bar Mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't want to do the ritual, and, and uh, Kim Tech wants him to do the ritual. And, and anyway, so as it turns out... Spoilers <laughs> for season seven of the, the, uh, the Next Generation. Yeah, they aired in 1994. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> spoilers. That so, uh, the yeah, Kim Tech is in fact Alexander back from the future. So putting aside the fact that that means that in the near future Klingons have time travel, what's really interesting, <laughs> or at is least one of them does, that he sent back in time. He sent himself back in time in order to make sure that Alexander becomes a warrior because Alexander is unable to defend his father in a fight in the future and he has yeah. to watch him die. And and that like Worf is assassinated because of Alexander peacemaking essentially. Yes, being a because he's man. grown up as a human as a federation person, he's trying to bring peace mm-hmm. and it ends up costing future Worf his life. Mm-hmm. Which puts this crazy spin on how Alexander perceives himself. Yeah. Um because it's never really mattered to him like you know, it, it, it never comes up in Alexander's life more than, like, you know, Worf will say, Alexander, I want you to be Klingon. And Alexander goes, no! Yeah. And that's it. That's yeah. it. But now he learns that there are consequences. Yeah. And I feel like any other franchise could have just moved on from that episode, but they didn't. It clearly has an impact on Alexander's life. Yeah. Because we see him again... In DS9. In DS9. Where now he's grown up a bit... And he's decided to try and become a warrior. At the worst one. He's, he's terrible. terrible. <laughs> he's, uh, so he, he shows up and he's on this like misfit ship when the Federation and the Klingons are participating together in the war against the Dominion. Dominion. Yeah. So, but this ship is like everybody's, it's the cursed ship. They, yeah, they this is, call it the This is ship. the dumping yeah. ground. The like, dumping right. ground for all the failures and he's clearly a failure. He cannot press two buttons at the same time. Like, I mean, and the the, the story motivation is that like, he grew up with humans. Yes. Like, everyone else on the ship grew up as a Klingon. Like, they were taught how to fight with knives and stuff. And but, they're still failures, too. Like, that's yeah. not any excuse for them. No. He has an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> but at this point, his father has become... A respected leader, a war... Even, even yeah. if he doesn't have a house. Oh, no, I guess at this point he's at House Martok. At this point, he, yeah, I think so. Around then, anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, long story short, he comes back, uh, his father... Worf is at first fighting his battles for him, then tries to get him to 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 fight his own battles, and yeah. it doesn't go well, and... 
Finally, it's... they succeed. I believe this <laughs> well, happens. It's something like America. There's like it's they succeed in the sense that Worf accepts him for who he is. Yeah, no. even though he hasn't quite figured it out yet himself, yeah. but that's okay. Um, but for a while there, like, you know, Martok says to Worf, like, you know, we've, we've fought so many battles together, you've never mentioned to me you had a son. Why haven't you mentioned anything? And we see why. It's because Worf's entire life, he's kind of been disappointed in Alexander. Yeah. Anyway, we've been, like, moving on this one for a long time, we should move on, but just that arc of Alexander, moving from that, from kid Alexander to this traumatic event in his life to the trying to be a warrior Alexander is a really cool examination of the clash between the two cultures, mm-hmm. which is what puts him on this list. Definitely. I mean, we've seen other sort of like failure, lame duck Klingons before, but no one quite like this. And no one who has such a strong connection to, to you know, yeah. one of our main characters. Story, motivation, and yeah. all those sorts of things. Yeah, he's, he's interesting. He's definitely interesting because, you know, one of the things that Star Trek deals with is, is existing between two cultures. And it, it's kind of one of those, like, Voyagers, Bolanotaurus, you know, um, and Seven of Nine. Yeah. Uh, Doctor, the Doctor and Voyager. Yeah, same thing there. But Spock in the original yeah. series, it's, and Worf. Cisco between the, you know, Bajorans and dealing mm-hmm. with the fact that he's a, 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 a religious messiah. figure. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah Worf, uh, Data, Spock, yeah. And it's all about being between two cultures and how dealing with, you know, the back and forth. And usually it's. Human culture is better than other cultures, but in this case, he clearly doesn't fit in in Klingon culture because he's had so much human influence. He's not making and, the... And it's not necessarily a good thing that no. he doesn't fit in with Klingon yeah. culture. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Okay. But it's, you know, interesting to watch. So, now, number two on the list is someone I might put at number one based on performance alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chancellor Gowron. Ah, oh, Gowron. He's so great. Started off on Next Generation, became a, a pretty major character on, on Deep Space Who Nine. Who plays Gowron? So Robert O'Reilly as Chancellor Gowron, who, for starters, you're right, his performance is astounding. Yeah. I don't know how you describe... like. Any other actor, you'd say maybe he's chewing on it a little. In this case, he's like digesting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. It's it's it was uh, when, when we did our recent rewatch of, of Next Gen, Andy is nine. It's all in the eyes. Like anytime he's on camera, you're looking at him, and he's just working his yeah. eyebrows. Everything he says, every action, like if you get the impression this is a guy who is on the phone ordering a pizza. He doesn't want pepperoni. He wants pepperoni. <laughs> <laughs> His it's, eyes are like bugging out of his head, and you'd think with the the sloped brow of the the Klingon makeup, it would cover it up. But his eyes just pop. He, it's like he it's he his eyes are all the acting he needs, and yeah. yet he also has this rich it's huge delivery with the neck and the yeah. thing. Like he's, he's, <laughs> again, it's it's the teeth and the neck and the, yeah. the makeup and the costume, like the shoulders, because he's a little guy. Like yeah. whenever he's with the other Klingons. He's little. Like, Martok's big. Worf is huge. And there's an episode towards the end of Deep Space Nine where it's a holodeck episode. It's the the casino heist. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the characters who are normally in makeup are outside of makeup. And he plays this, like, cash counter in the back room. It fits in totally well. He just looks like a, a little accountant guy. Just totally ignorable. Yeah, the actor is unremarkable, whereas the character character, is so rich. So his character, he's the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire for all of Next Gen and most of Deep Space Nine. Nobody likes him. He's very much a politician in a culture of forthright warriors. Mm -hmm. 
And he's just constantly doing everything wrong, but Worf has this on-again, off-again friendship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, spoilers, by the end, Worf ends up killing him. Because he just has to at that point. Because Gowron isn't... Like, because he's a politician, he's a dishonest guy. Well, also because he wanted war with the Federation. He he he, he was of the, the group that believed that war was required for the Klingon Empire to survive. It was expand or die. Yeah, I mean, although... In that case, in the DS9 one, that was also there was some Dominion influence nice. there, which we'll get to. But then, like the like the when what finally causes Worf to snap is Gowron sees how popular Martok is becoming. Yeah, and he's trying and, to not yeah, like any other Klingon like wouldn't care about popularity. But if you had a problem with the guy, like you take out your knife and you'd stab him. Yeah, Gowron tries to like set him up. Yeah, he orders Martok into these impossible attacks like, that are going to get him killed. And, stuff. And, and Worf sees it, and he's like, what are you doing? Like, this is our best general. Like, we need this guy to win the war. And Gowron doesn't care. It's a threat to him politically. Yeah. And oh. he... I think Gowron knows that he isn't a strong warrior. I mean, it comes... It doesn't, it's never said, but I think he knows, because he, he doesn't want to fight Martok one-on-one. Also, Martok is hugely popular, despite being low-born. Yeah, and that's another thing that comes up. Like, but despite that, he's hugely popular because he is the most successful general of the generation, and and Gowron feels threatened. Now we do see him fight. He fights Worf a couple of times, Mm -hmm. even before the final fight where Worf beats him. Worf consistently beats him, which is embarrassing to him because they see Worf is tainted because you know Federation and everything. And he spent a long time without a house and without honor, and yeah. And then he joined House Martok, and so he's of the enemy, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, but just, he's not slimy in the way Lursan Bator is slimy. Like, he's not, he doesn't come off necessarily as a villain, but he's a self-entitled politician. We all know politicians yes. like that. <laughs> yeah. It's just that that culture leaves an opening to resolve that situation with a bat left duel to the death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, I think, is very reasonable, and we should consider implementing here, but neither here nor there... The whole time, everything about Gowron's performance is so ludicrously over the top. And just, like, in in the same episode, he can l- be in love with Worf. War! For the hugs and the back slapping. Yeah. And then immediately just turn into just, I don't have any non-curse words. <laughs> a jerk. In total, just he turn into a jerk. <laughs> and just, you know, take away your honor, take away your house, take away your family. He's just yeah. such a scuzz, but he's so... So powerful doing it. He's almost like a cartoon. Yeah. Mm. Even when he first arrived, he was pretty small. Like, I think, I mean, TNG didn't necessarily have the breadth that they wanted, they, they, they moved him into. But even at the beginning, we saw that he had, he was doing a lot. It was just a, it was just a smaller performance, but the same sort of energy involved. Like, when, um, when he arrived, he, he is challenging Duras. Uh, to be the next chancellor. Right, right. And they get Picard in to make the decision for some reason. <laughs> well, they need a neutral party. Yeah. And the Enterprise happens to be there. Yeah. How convenient. Mm-hmm. How convenient. He's so big in his performance, even when he's not as big in his movements, he's just still 
it's all kinds of intensity right there in the eyes. Yeah. Oh, the the DS9 episode where he's... The, the, the awards, the induction into the House of Kalos. And so over and over and over, he's, he's giving this award. Every time, it, glory to you and your house. <laughs> over your house. and over. And it's always just hilariously amazing. <laughs> All right, so we yeah. can't we can't talk about uh, Gowron without talking about, as evidenced by this conversation, without talking about General Martok, our number one on the list. And we should just quickly say we left Worf out of the list because it was too easy. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, Worf is the character who's been the most episodes of Star Trek. Yeah, yes. we we all love Worf. Um, I'm but, not just saying the Klingon who's been the most episodes. He is the character yeah. who has been the most episodes. Yeah. So we under, like, yeah. So all of you who are mad, no, no, we love Worf, but he gets like a buy on this one. Yeah, we so, could do a top five Worf list. You yeah, know? we probably will at some point. Yeah, but without him, the top Klingon has got to be Martok. Mm-hmm. Martok is phenomenal. Martok starts off; it seems like it's a fairly minor character. We don't even find out right away. No, we don't even find it right away. He shows up in Way of the Warrior on DS Nine as like the Klingon. Yeah. Like he's lead, he's in charge of the new ship. The and, task force. The yeah, task force. yeah, the task force that goes to war with Cardassia. Yeah, and that causes a breakdown in relation between the Klingons and the Federation. And he's the Klingon who's like, "No, let's fight the Federation." Rah, they suck. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. He did a good job. They brought him back and made him sort of a recurring character in the Klingon Empire, where it turned out he was sort of the architect of a lot of these problems. Spoiler alert. But really, go watch DS9. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but spoiler alert, it turns out he was a changeling the entire the time. The whole time. Basically, in modern parlance, he was a Cylon. Right. The whole time. And the whole time. And lots of these decisions, like the breakdown in relations between the Klingons and the Federation and the war against Cardassia, all makes a ton of sense if the Dominion's the puppet master. Yeah. And even then, they could have called it there, because they kill the Martok changeling. But then later... In one of the, you know, the character gets goes to Dominion Prison and finds the actual General Martok. Yeah, Worf goes to Dominion Prison. Yeah, and finds the actual General Martok and brings him back, and he becomes a regular on DS Nine. He's played by J.G. Hertzler. Great name. Great name. Um, Martok. The way Gowron is like a bad Klingon. He does Klingon poorly. Yeah. Martok is everything a Klingon says he should be. Right. Martok is. I think, more Klingon than Worf. Like, we see Worf sort of, until throughout DS9, he's the epitome of Klingon, right? Because every other Klingon appearance, not every other Klingon appearance, but most of the other Klingon appearances are as villain. Martok shows up when he shows up finally, uh, and is his character, is fully, fully formed. He is the Klingon that loves war. He's like Chang earlier. He's, he's typical Klingon. Yeah. You know, but yeah, at the but... same time, he's like our favorite Klingon because he's just so cool. <laughs> well, I don't know how else to put it. It, <laughs> it, it, it. it helps that he's on our side. Yes, he's um, not a villain. Yeah, Martok takes the concept of Klingon honor and applies it in the way that we would try to apply honor. Yeah, he's like if Worf. You know, we talked about how Worf wanted to be the ideal Klingon. If when if there had been a General Martok action figure when he was growing up, he would have had it. Because... Yeah, Worf clearly idolizes General Martok. Like over the course of that that prison two parter. Like, I mean, which I think, like, they stretch, like, what happens chronologically, I think, takes a few weeks or maybe even months. 
But they develop this bromance mm-hmm. between the two of them where Worf sees Martok as everything he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. As Martok, he's, you know, he's a straight shooter, he's honest, he's direct. He's honorable. He's honorable. In and a he's way a great that, warrior. And he's a great warrior. What else do you want? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all of the things. He fills all of the things that the Klingons want. And we see, you know, we see a lot of Klingons who talk a good honor game, but don't really, you know, Martok's son... Although, like, this is in Martok is a changeling, but Martok's son is pushing Garrick around for you no know, Like, he's a bully, yeah. essentially, and Worf smacks him down. Those are the Klingons we're used to seeing. Seeing the positive Klingon, huge difference. And, I mean, you can't tell me he was only in three episodes. No, like, Martok he's in was a huge. Ton, yeah. They clearly saw how much people were into this character and milked it. He's, yeah. He, Since Way of the Warriors, season four, right? Three? What are we at? Four. Four, right. Yeah. So, so so from four through seven, he's busy. Yeah. yeah. And by yeah. season seven, he's in every episode. Yeah. Like he's a major character towards the end, and he is the Klingon Empire for the like the last few seasons of that show. Everything we expect Klingons to be and do comes from Martok. And we talked about the misfit ship earlier. Martok has his own, like, he's on the misfit ship to straighten them out, but it turns out he has his own problems because he's been from prison so long. It's kind of like he's lost his mojo. But Worf helps him get it back um, by yelling at him and then having a knife fight because that's how Klingons get their mojo back. (laughs) That's how how they get their groove. And from then, like, Martok becomes this inspiration to this crew of bumblers. Like, the the ship, the Rotaran, becomes his flagship. Yeah. Like, even though, like, he should have a big war cruiser or something. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a bird. Yeah, it's, it's a, a bird war. of prey. Yeah, but not a cl- it's not a D five. It's not it's not a, the the big ships. It's no, that's a, those, and those aren't even considered birds of prey. It's um, are, the, those are the big Katinga cruisers. Yeah. All right, all right. we're getting into right, the, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so he's on just this little ship with this crew of bumblers, but he's just this inspirational leader to them. Yeah, and we have several more episodes that take place on the Rotaran. And really, like, the bumbling arc kind of goes away. Because yeah. he whips them into shape. And that, when Jadzia dies, and they go on, like, the, the mission to get her into Stovacor, they go to blow up a sun. Yeah, yeah. it's like the hardest mission they can find. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go die now. <laughs> well, that's the whole point, right? It's yeah. to do an honorable enough deed to, yeah. But that's, like, it. Just, that becomes a regular set piece. Yeah. And it goes and right up until the end, and they, you know, the, 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 like at the end on Cardassia, and everything's in flames, and it's Cisco and the Admiral, Admiral Ross, yeah. I think, and Martok. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Martok is awesome. His his wife is in at least one episode. She's the one who like says in, in the wedding, in the wedding, and yeah. she's like. You know, this just like Martok is like your ideal Klingon man. She seems to be like the ideal Klingon woman, very traditional, very stoic, and and like a total badass in her own way. Yeah, it, but she doesn't want Jadzia to marry Worf. No. Yeah, she's funny because like she's like she's the Klingon equivalent of having her nose so high in the air. Yeah, like he sees her for the first time in all these years, and she tells him, you know, you look fat. Yeah. You put on weight. <laughs> And, and, and walks off, and Martok goes, Oh, remarkable, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, All right, so, so... So, yes, apologies for Worf. Yeah. He's one of my favorite Star Trek characters. Well, period. not apologizing for him. He's he, he, he was... So easily number one that you can't have... You, you would just only it would get be to a talk about Worf yeah. Klingons. Yeah. Right? So we wanted to talk about other people. And, you know, we also didn't include Balana. And uh, <laughs> for, yeah, because she doesn't count, and that's fine. Um, no, the, so that's those are the Klingons. The Klingons are fantastic. On the off chance you're that one person Graham thinks listens to this show who doesn't know what Klingons are, he's sure there's one person, which means that there is one person. 
He's not telling us who. I'm ne- I will <laughs> never say that. But it is one person, and they're out there, and you know who you are. If you're that person, go find Star Trek The Next Generation and watch the episodes Redemption, the two-parter. Go watch Star Trek Generations. Go watch Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And really, go watch Deep Space Nine, at least from, like, season three, every episode after that. Yeah, yeah the Klingons were, were became, like, a joke in the pop culture because of the foreheads and because of the name and because of the silliness. They were, like, the Star Trek aliens. But, you know, there's a DVD box set that's, like, the best Klingon episodes of Star Trek. Just get that, you know? Just get that. that that'll remarkable. cover your bases and it'll make you appreciate what a rich culture these fake alien TV show villains have. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. Special thanks to our guest, Dave Clark. Thanks for, thanks for coming out again. It's Ooh. always a pleasure. And special thanks as well to our crew, to Stella Simunova and Ben Sound, bensound.com. All of them were helping to bring this together for you. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think of our Klingon list and those Klingon episodes. Really, do go watch them. But otherwise, get in touch with us in general. Yeah, we have our website, www.geektop5.com. You can email us at uh, geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. And we're on Twitter at geektop5. Geektop5, we'll talk to you again soon. 